I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And today, oh, it's just... It's a good one, guys. It's a good one today. This is a pretty special occasion. We've got a special guest. He is an Ironman legend. He's in the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame. He's in the Ironman Hall of Fame. And that is despite his distinct lack of athletic excellence. It is the one and only Bob Babbitt. Bob started tracing triathlons Years ago, in the late 70s, he did his first Ironman triathlon in 1980 on the island of Oahu. Yes, the original Hawaii Ironman World Championships. And he's also the co-founder of Competitor Magazine, the Challenged Athletes Foundation, which you guys will know all about, especially with the upcoming performance reset coming up on the occasion. And he created Competitor Radio and the Muddy Buddy Ride and Run series. Bob is simply a legend and a lightning rod of the sport. He's interviewed the very best throughout the whole of the sport of triathlon and well beyond. And today, we turn the tables. Yep, we get Bob on the other side of the microphone. And we unpick Bob as a human being, his background, his youth his journey in triathlon. And I tell you what, I spent a good couple of hours planning, thinking about questions, building up the framework. And I got to ask about three or four questions today because Bob just takes control. But the outcome, an absolutely epic interview. But before we get going, we're not going to do squatty updates today. We're not going to do word of the week. We're going to dive right into the interview. But we do have a couple of things and promos relative to much of our conversation today around the Challenged Athletes Foundation, as well as the performance reset coming up. The first is if you like the interview today, you actually have a chance to be interviewed by Bob. Yes, as a part of Performance Reset 2020, and you can go and find information at performancereset2020.com, you've got a chance to have your very own Breakfast with Bob interview. And as he explains in the interview, he just loves people's story, what makes them tick. And so if you'd like to enter, head to registration at Performance Reset 2020, and you've got a chance to have your very own interview. And if you've seen Breakfast with Bob and the radio show, you're going to know that Poncho Man is going to be there with a special song just for you. And so that's number one. The second thing that I want to point out as it relates to Performance Reset is a wonderful, wonderful sweepstakes with our friends from Precision Hydration. They are giving away, and this one's special, they're giving away an opportunity to have a one-to-one consultation with the legend Mark Allen. Now, you've got to be really creative, and you have to also dance in the farmyard of social media. If you go to at Precision Hydration on Instagram and submit your caption for a really, really funny 
Picture up there of Mark back in the day, fully clad in lycra. You've got a chance to win a session with Mark at a time you're choosing where you're going to go through anything around mindset, performance, or just hear great stories from the legend. And finally, I want you to stay tuned for a sweepstakes promotion for the chance to win one of 20 prizes valued at almost $10,000 from our Performance Reset Promotion Partners. There's a one-to-one session with me. Now, that's not very high value, is it, really? But there's a one-to-one session with me. There's a subscription to our squad program. There's an entry to any Ironman or 70.3 globally that you get access to. Huge prize packages from Ventum, Picky Bars, Roka, Strava, and much, much more. And so stay tuned. We're going to be giving this out in the coming week or so, but it is a magical sweepstakes. But That's all of the gifts that we're giving away. Breakfast with Bob, one-to-one with the legend of Mark Allen, and of course, the huge package of prizes from the sweepstakes. Head to performancereset2020.com, get involved. It is time for a reset. We've spoken so much about it on the show. You're going to get peppered a little bit more for the coming two weeks. It is November the 13th and the 15th. And one thing I want you guys to bear in mind as listeners you don't have to spend the whole weekend with us. This is designed to be highly interactive. You can pop into the the sessions and the speakers that really resonate with you. But the other thing that I think is important, particularly for people in stretched time zones, is that everything, every single session we do is going to be recorded and available to you for months after the event so that you can digest at the cadence that suits you best. And so get involved. But today, It is all about Bob Babbitt. And so here it is, an hour of power. I can say no more. Sit back, get comfortable, enjoy a nice cup of tea, not made in the microwave, please. And I give you the legend, Bob Babbitt. Right, guys, it is the meat and potatoes, and today, well, tell you what, we don't often have legends joining us, but today we have a legend. Bob Babbitt, thank you very much for joining us today. Anytime, Matt. Always a pleasure to get to speak to one of the best coaches on the planet. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I tell you what, you have always had others in the hot seat and today it is time to turn the tables a little bit your uh your name is in my mind your name is just synonymous with the sport of triathlon and and obviously the long-running babbittville podcast tv radio show and i would say actually more than almost anyone i could think of you you gave voice and image to this absolutely crazy event in hawaii that uh that really many people couldn't wrap their head around i think that you sit at the heartbeat of multi-sport and triathlon. You're a main character in the sports fabric and story. And through your efforts, you've really exposed endurance sports to literally everyone as obviously a co-founder of the Challenge Athletes Foundation of what we're going to talk about today. You're also a member of USA Triathlon Hall of Fame. You're the in the Ironman Triathlon Hall of Fame. So my first question to you is, what the heck have you done to be stuck with me here? today what happened to you did i miss out a bombshell article or something that ruined your career 
<laughs> I, I'm proud to be the first fat guy inducted into the Ironman Hall of Fame. That was actually a, a, a pretty major coup for me. So, yeah, I, it's this. Uh, I think when I look back at all the all the years and all the events and everything else, I, I think a lot of times it comes down to, and you know this better than anybody, you just know something that something hits you. When I finished that Ironman back in 1980. I knew that, that I was changed. I was a different person. I had a business card now that told me that I could do anything in life because I, I was planning. I thought you did this stupid 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and 26.2 mile run. I thought you did it in two days. And I remember back then, only 15 people had done it the year before, and 12 finished in 79. Same in 78. So 108 of us in 1980, I thought you swam 2.4 rode 56, camped out, rode back the next day and ran the marathon. We had no idea what we were really getting ourselves into. There was no aid stations. There was no cutoff times. There was, you know, there was, there was no rules, right? There was, no roads were blocked off. We had no idea what we were doing. So finishing that event told me that I could, I could accomplish anything. And, and I felt from then on that other people would feel the same thing. They would feel they would gain from that event what I gained from that event, which was a a better sell set of a better impression of myself and a better perception of myself and what I could what I could accomplish. And that led to starting Competitor Magazine, Challenge Athletes Foundation, Muddy Buddy Ride and Run Series, Competitor Radio, and Endurance Sports Awards, and, and a lot of other stuff. But just like you, you do things from your gut. You do things because you know it's the right thing. It's not like you have a five year business plan and go okay, I'm going to do this stupid thing called the Ironman, and then I'm going to start a magazine, and then we're going to buy all the rock and roll marathons. And No, you just you do what you what's in your gut, and the next thing you know, there's a business there. But I think a lot of times when people think of it from, I'm going to go make a living and try to pigeonhole something into that, it doesn't work. When you go from your gut, when you go from your passion, I think se- things seem to work out. Things seem to work out. That's it. And I, and I want to dig in today. In fact, so much what you talked about there with those early years of Ironman, Challenged Athletes Foundation, we're going to dive in. So here's, here's what I want to do. And, and the first place I want to start is, is actually something that I do with every guest. Uh, not, not all of the Purple Patch podcasts we have guests. It's often me talking about my favorite subjects and, uh, and just talking to the microphone. But with every guest, I think it's really important to get context of who we're speaking to. So the first thing I want to do before we go to 1980 and beyond, and before we go to triathlon, I'd like to know a little bit more about Bob Babbitt. And, and this is exciting because I actually don't know this. So as we get going, just give us a, a couple of minutes on your life growing up, your family, where you grew up, your your education, things like that. Sure. So I, I grew up in if you were someone who grew up in the U.S. and you watched a TV show called The Waltons, where everybody, you know, the family all lived together and everybody, everybody just was all part of the same group. Uh, it's sure. sort of like that. My my grandfather uh, started an auto parts store in, called Babbitt Auto in the 1920s. And my dad, his brothers, three of his brothers, they basically took over the business from my grandfather and had Babbitt Auto. So my grandfather bought a building uh, in Chicago, and in that building, we lived on the second floor. My grandfather lived across the hall, 
my uncle Ozzy and his five kids lived downstairs. My aunt Barbara, my dad's sister, lived upstairs with her three kids. And the woman who babysat all of us lived in a different apartment. So uh, everybody in the building was a bat. Everybody was related to us, right? So I thought everybody grew up that way. I had I I didn't meet a person who had been a like a had parents who were divorced until I was in in late high school. I couldn't comprehend that whole concept of wait wait you don't have your uncles and aunts and everybody all living together with you what what the heck so that that was sort of my upbringing and I also realized pretty early on when it came to sports I wasn't good right? I wasn't good at baseball or football or any of that stuff, but I did have a skill set. My skill set was this. I was the guy on the block who would go to Matt Dixon's house and go, hey, Matt, we're going to play baseball in the street in 10 minutes. And Matt Dixon, not wanting to be the first person out there, would go, who else is playing? And I'd go, I got Norm, I got Jimmy, I got Johnny, I got Mark Allen, I got all the guys. Oh, cool. I'm coming because nobody wants to be the first. Now, fortunately, there weren't cell phones back then for people to call and say, are you really doing this? No. So you would come out. And so then I can go to the next guy's house. And they say, well, who's coming? I got Matt. Matt Dixon's coming. Oh, well, then I'm coming. So it was that that sort of led to everything that that made sort of made me who I am is just getting people together, rounding people up and going, hey, we're going to do this party called Thank God I'm Not Racing. And, you know. I think it'd be fun to give out medals. I already got Alan from Head Sweats giving us hats. How about some medals? Oh, I'll give medals. And next thing you know, you got 400 people on the night before Ironman coming out for some silly party. So it's if I look back at my life, it's a, it's a sequence and a number of events very much like that where I come up with an idea and then figure out who can help make it better. And then bring everybody on board. And next thing you know, you know, you've got uh, you've you've got the Ironman triathlon, which I think we helped grow from this event with 108 idiots to an event that uh, now is a worldwide phenomenon. And we took a silly thing called the uh, a ride and tie with horses, which I don't know if I've ever told you about this, but this was a silly event. Imagine this me and you teaming up with a horse and we're going 28 miles, right? And so a, a buddy, this is like after I moved to San Diego and after we had done Ironman and a friend rode horses and didn't run much. And I had never been on a horse. So he called me up and said, Hey, you want to be my teammate for this thing? You know, it's a 28 mile riding tie. You take turns. One person rides, goes about four miles, ties his horse to a tree, leaves the horse, starts running. Then his buddy runs up, unties the horse, starts riding you leapfrog back and forth for 28 miles. Seems like a pretty simple concept. Only concept, the only problem for me was I'd never ridden a horse before. So the week before, I put on a helmet and I get on our horse Shasta and I turn the reins to the left. He goes left. I turn to the right. goes right. I'm like, what's well, a big deal? They didn't tell me they start this thing with a shotgun. That the, the race director shoots the shotgun. <laughs> my partner's on the horse. He goes four miles. And by the time I get to Shasta at mile four, his name isn't Shasta anymore. It's lightning. He's pawing the sky with his with his hooves. And I'm like, I, I'm going to get on this thing. So I get on the back of this horse. And I swear to God, he's Carl Lewis now. He's jumping everybody. I'm holding. There's no reins here. I'm holding on to his mane. And I'm hoping not to die. 
And as we're running along, I'm, I'm bouncing up and down going, this is a great concept. we got to lose the horse. <laughs> so I get to about mile 20. And at that point, I've ridden three miles and run 17. And at mile 20, uh, we're supposed to change. And I figured the horse has to be tired. So we'll walk the last eight miles. Well, as I get there, they're loading Shasta into the back of one of those little horsey corrals. And I'm like, where's he going? And the vet, they do a vet check there at mile 20. Oh, his hooves are sore. I'm like, his hooves are sore? I just ran 17 miles. What the hell? The next thing you know, I'm running the last eight miles. And my mantra the whole time was, this is a great concept. We got to lose the horse. So I come back to San Diego and I'm like, you know what? I want to do something with this concept. So what we did is I got a guy who had a local bike shop at the beach with what we call butt bikes, you know, the bikes with the big saddles and you, you rent them and ride along the boardwalk. So Dan Rock was the guy. And I said, Dano, let's get your butt bikes out to Penasquitas Canyon and we're going to do a thing called a riding tie. And because this was, and we we're going to do it on Thanksgiving. And the whole idea was everybody here in town, Scott Molina, Scott Tinley, uh, Paul and everybody was fit, but nobody wanted to do anything serious. So I'm like, okay, we're going to do this safari. And we're going to take two you know, two people and a butt bike and hide. I'm going to hide stuffed animals all over the canyon. And every animal you bring back is worth time off your total time. And it's a 12-mile ride and tie with butt bikes rather than horses. And I'm in a turkey outfit. And the next thing you know, this thing is growing and growing and growing. And I've got a doc, uh, spam station at, at mile three. And every piece of spam you ate was worth 30 seconds off your time. Mark Montgomery was a legend <laughs> of eating spam. Yeah, and, and the entry fee was 10 cans of food, which we donate to a local charity. This thing, all of a sudden, I'm getting, then there's a theme here because you see the turkey outfit on Thanksgiving, the bunny suit on Easter. And next thing you know, I'm getting 125 teams showing up to this. Un, un, uh, no, I have no permits whatsoever for this thing. We're just doing it. And I've got a storage unit, which I still have with 300 stuffed animals in it. And this thing is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then in 1998, the president of Brooks, a guy named Bruce Pettit, we're sitting down, John Smith, our sales director and competitor, we're sitting talking to Bruce about, hey, we want you to do more advertising for Brooks and competitor. And he's like, listen, I don't have dollars for advertising to compete with Nike or Adidas or Reebok, but... If you had a event of some sort, I'd be all in on that. I'm like, well, what if we took my ride and tie and we added some mud pits and we made it a six mile so anybody can do it and obstacles. So Matt and I are teammates and I ride my bike to the 25 foot inflatable with the cargo net up the front and the slide down the back. I leave the bike, do the obstacle, start running. My buddy runs up. And he does the obstacle, grabs a bike, and rides by me to the next obstacle. So six miles, six obstacles. The last obstacle is a mud pit. You wait for your buddy at the mud pit, and whoever gets there first. The two of you go through the mud pit together and go to the beer garden. Six miles. So each person runs three and rides three one at a time. Anybody can do it. Next thing you know, we've got 40,000 people doing the Muddy Buddy Ride and Run series at 18 events around the country. But we didn't know that when I sat on this horse trying not to die, that that was going to lead to something that, but I knew the concept was cool. The two people, that didn't change. What changed 
was you got rid of the 3,000 pound thing that can stomp you to death and eat you out of house and home. And you replaced it eventually when Tinley showed up with a mountain bike. It was like, oh my God, what is this thing from the Star Wars, right? We had never seen a bike with gears on it for with, with fat tires on it before. But it was that was a, a sort of an example of how you take nothing, but you believe in it and you make it into something. It, it also talks to the very essence. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but the, the very essence of the beauty and power of sport when you strip it down, that um, that the whole journey that we go on is about so much more. Like, as, as you told that story, it's magnetic. But the whole journey is so much more than how fast, who won, who cares. Do you know what I mean? There's a massive power in that in that story around sport globally, which I think uh, we're obviously going to come to a little bit later on. Yeah, it, to me, w- when I left when I left teaching, and I was running a PE program uh, called Bob Time uh, with with the kids in San Diego, and that I met a guy named Mike Plant who was had a little newspaper called San Diego Track Club News. And I told him, I said, after I coming back from Ironman in 1980, I'm like, dude, and then it became running news. I'm like, Mike, this sport, this triathlon thing is really getting big. And Mike was there when the early triathlons in 74 and 75 and 76 started in San Diego. And he eventually uh, changed the name of the magazine to Running and Triathlon News. I became his LA editor, left teaching. And Lois Schwartz, who became one of the most decorated photographers in our world shot the iron war shot she was the art teacher at the school i was at and she left teaching with me to become the photographer for la for running a triathlon news and the two of us drove up every weekend to events and we loved it we had no idea where it was going to go and that eventually when in 87 when running a triathlon news went out of business I, i knew that there was something there uh, that was bigger than than what was out there at the time. So I went to meet with the publishers of two cycling magazines. One was called California Bicyclist. One was called Southwest Cycling. I said, guys, if we did a magazine with running, triathlon, and cycling, it could be really special. And they both said the same thing. This is 1987. They both said, we'll never put a skinny runner on the cover of our magazine. And the sport of triathlon's a fad. It'll be gone in five years. This is 87. And I came back from this meeting pretty bummed, and some friends came to Lois and I and gave us a check for $17,000 and said, go start your own magazine. So that was in April of 87. In June of 87, we came out with the first edition of Competitor Magazine. We are under 20,000 pounds of bike racks in a guy's garage. We were paying $200 a month for 200 square feet of office space and had no idea that 95% of all new magazines go out of business within the first year. Fortunately, ignorance is bliss. I lived on friends' floors for the first three years. We didn't pay ourselves for a year and a half, but we loved it. We knew these sports were special. And eventually, we had 11 editions of Competitor Magazine and half, half a million circulation. And the brand grew eventually in 08. Private Equity came on board, and we ended up... Uh, buying all the rock and roll marathons, bought Velo News and Inside Triathlon and uh, Triathlete Magazine, and we built what became the competitor group and went from seven rock and rolls in 2008 to 34 in 2012 with 650,000 participants and, more importantly, 60% women. Up until that point, running and triathlon was a 80% guys, 20% women world. 
And all of a sudden, rock and roll became 60% women. It changed the expos. All of a sudden, it wasn't Matt and I going to see how quickly we can get out of the expo. It was people coming and shopping at the expo. And it, it, it changed everything about our sports. So it's, uh, it's watching all of that happen, watching those, those important moments in time from Ironman and uh, ABC coming over 1980 and covering the event for the first time, the Julie Moss collapsing and all of that. Those special moments are what made our what have really built our sports. It's it's the backbone of it. So so I have to go back. You as an individual, the one thing I didn't touch on was your your educational background. Did you have a background in journalism at all, or were you literally making this up on the fly? Making it up on the fly. We uh, I went to University of Illinois, and I had a liberal arts degree, which basically means I took a lot of history classes because I had you know, I just wanted to get through and get a degree. And there's really when I came to San Diego and when Mike Plant was the one, we all have people who believed in us before we believed in ourselves, mm -hmm. I think. And yep. Mike was the one when I first came to him and said, hey, you know, uh, this this sport triathlon is going to get bigger. And he he obviously knew that. I called him up in like 1981. This is while I was still teaching. And I was putting on a triathlon for the kids at our school called Iron Kits. And the kids would run a, run a mile and then they'd do a little obstacle course and they'd swim in a pool. And I had trophies that I got from Mexico. I drove down to Tijuana and got these incredible Hulk trophies. And I called Mike and said, Hey Mike, this would be a fun thing for your magazine for running news. And he goes, well, why don't you write it? And I'm like, I've never written before. He says, go, go ahead and write it. So I wrote it and talked about the helicopters overhead and, you know, people ready for this major swim. And he's like, this is great. You need to do more of this. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? He says, do whatever you want. So I, I created a character called the Reverend Campagnola Minister of Triathlism with some, you know, <laughs> phony questions and phony answers. And, and the thing was back then, if you wanted to write a letter, you didn't just send an email. You had to go write a letter, put a stamp on it and send it. Yep. All of a sudden, we're getting letters. And the letters are half the people are like, this guy is hilarious. I love what he's doing. The other half were. You know, because one of my Reverend Campagnolas was, you know, dear Rev, I've heard about these new things called wetsuits. How do I figure out the best way to size myself for this? Uh, confused in Carlsbad. Dear Confused, this is what I do. I went, I went to a local race and I stood outside the transition area and I waited for someone who sort of looked like me size wise. And when he left, I just took his home. <laughs> <laughs> As you might imagine, we've got a fair number of letters saying, I can't believe you're encouraging people to steal wetsuits. Oh, so anyway, but Mike loved it because it was people, if you're, if you're, the one thing you don't want in life is vanilla. You don't want people to go, man, eh, article is no big deal. I'm not going to write a letter. Why would I waste my time? That pissed me off. I'm going to write a letter. That, that made me laugh. I'm going to write a letter. All of a sudden, we're getting letters. I, and then I, a character called the Running Wino, which, which rubbed a few people the wrong way, and the old fart of the month, and just some things that were different, and they were sort of attached to our sport, but also a little bit out there. But Mike was the one who said, and I'll never forget, he says, do not be vanilla. Always lead with passion. And if you do that, people are going to follow. And it, there, there couldn't be a better lesson for me to learn as a young guy at that time. And, and he also taught me when you write, 
and this funny because nowadays for sure everybody knows the stats of what happened in the race said you don't care what happened we know who won by the time the article comes out a month from now people know who won. what's the best story what is the best part of the of the that race was the story the guy who won the woman who won the guy who's who coming back from cancer the guy with the heart transplant you tell that story don't feel like you have to cover everything tell the story that means the most to you and i found during those early days the wheelchair athletes at when we're talking competitive running and triathlon competitor magazine we put a guy named jim Knob in a four-wheeled wheelchair who had been an olympic trials pole vaulter and jimmy was on the cover of the magazine i did this big feature on him because his story was so rich. He was an Olympic trials pole vaulter who was hit by a motorcycle and knew before he hit the ground that his life was changed for a reason. And so he would go out to these races. Remember back then, if you showed up in a wheelchair to do a race, they'd have you go off last and pat you on the head and thanks for being there. Well, Knob's showing up in a Dalmatian outfit, right? A black and white skin suit and he's kicking everybody's ass and he's going, hey, I'm the first one across the line. Where's my money? Right. And they're like, wait, wait, wait a second. And so when I was interviewing him, I'll never forget this. I go to his house and there's a, a nickel on the ground in his little house in Long Beach. And my first thought is, oh, my God, the poor guy in a wheelchair can't can't get that nickel. You know, he can't bend down in the wheelchair. And as I'm trying to pry this nickel off the ground, which is glued to the floor, He's drinking a beer going, so Babbitt, you didn't think the cripple could pick the nickel up off the floor. And, <laughs> and at that point, I, I started to learn a lot from Jimmy because his great line was when David Bailey, former motocross world champion, when he was paralyzed, mm-hmm. Jimmy said to Bailey, hey, listen, why walk when you can fly, right? Yeah, yeah, walk. You can't do the walking anymore. Quit whining about it get out there and kick some ass in a wheelchair. And next thing you know, Kanab's taking him deep sea fishing in Baja and they're going parachuting in New Zealand. And he, David Bailey ends up winning the Ironman in the hand cycle division. But it was Jim Kanab who saw that, dude, I know you're pissed about your, what happened. You were making $750,000 a year as the best supercross guy in the world. Now you're in a wheelchair. Well, you know what? Being in a wheelchair can be pretty cool. He, he he told him, he said, listen, when I'm in my Ford pickup truck, getting from my seat to the wheelchair that I've put outside the, the door of the car, that's an athletic event. When I was pole vaulting, I had three jumps to get over. I got one opportunity to get from my truck into that wheelchair. And if I miss, I'm flat on the pavement. That's an athletic event. So he, you know, why walk when you can fly? Uh, the other great soundbite from Jimmy was, the person who wins a race isn't the one who goes the fastest. It's, it's the one who slows down the least. What I loved about that was that wasn't a, that was universal. That was Matt Dixon, the runner. That was uh, Steve Larson, the cyclist. That's Jim Knob racing Craig Blanchett in the wheelchair. It's, it, the chair disappears. The disability disappears. It's about you as an athlete and how fast can you go and how, how quickly can you get there and how much do you want it? That those are universal thoughts that transfer to Muhammad Lana, to David Bailey, to uh, to Jan Frodeno. And we all connect through, like you said, the power of sport. The power of sport allows us to overcome those things in our life that sometimes can slow us down. Well, I, you know, as I've listened to you so far, I, a word, two words come out. One is lightning rod. 
and just the, the the great connector. But when you when you told the story of the competitor magazine that, that emerging into the competitor group with rock and roll, and that's how I first met you, by the way, when when that was the center of your your world. The word as soon as, as, soon as it came out, sixty percent women was inclusive, and with that in mind, I, I want to discuss. I want to take the leap to the Challenged Athletes Foundation. And I want to frame this first. I think this is important because when I think of this year that we are all navigating 2020 and what is needed for all of us universally to not just navigate, but also thrive in such challenging times, I as a coach immediately went to mental and physical resilience and high adaptability. And in fact, many of the characteristics that make up what I label the athletic mindset and I can't think of a better example of resilience and adaptability than the athletes of the Challenged Athletes Foundation. And so I want to explore with you that organization. And, and, and I guess first, how did you start the foundation? So it goes back to a gentleman by the name of Jim McLaren. Jim McLaren was a football player at Yale, 300-pound offensive lineman. And in 1985, he was taking acting classes in New York and was hit by a New York City bus while he's on his motorcycle. Thrown 90 feet in the air, dead on arrival. They chalked his body on the ground. He lived, lost his lower left leg, and came back from that. And this is when we connected. He ran a 316 marathon with a walking leg. We're talking a leg that's one step ahead of Captain Hook. We're, we're not talking... We're not talking a C-sprint. We're not talking any carbon fiber, none of that. And then he comes to Kona and goes 1042 at the Ironman World Championship, top 20% mm -hmm. of everybody in the race. And that's when I started covering Jimmy. And Jimmy was the one-legged guy who was sponsored by Bud Light and sponsored by Profile by Design and traveling the world. He had reinvented himself and became, seriously, the, the Babe Ruth of amputee athletes. He was the best. So flash ahead eight years, he's racing in a triathlon in Mission Viejo, California. A van goes through a closed intersection, hits the back of his bike, propels him headfirst into a pole. A guy who's earning amputee becomes a quadriplegic. Mm -hmm. I wondered the odds on that. And I was in that race. And we kept hearing rumblings that something had happened to Jimmy. And so then myself and Jeffrey Esikow, who was working for the Tinley Company, and uh, Rick Kozlowski, who put on all the events in San Diego in terms of triathlon, the three of us got together, and our goal was athletes like Jim Knob. When I talked to Jim Knob and asked them about the worst part about being paralyzed, it was invariably, I'm 30 years old, here come mom and dad back in my life. No sense of self or independence. So our goal became, we're going to put a little triathlon in La Jolla Cove, we're going to raise $25,000 and buy Jimmy a van with hand controls to give him independence. That was it. That's all we wanted to do. We raised 49 at the first triathlon in 1993, 1994, and we were done ready to get Jimmy the van. And three amputee women came to us and told us that Jimmy was their hero. He got them into endurance sports. They had not been into endurance before. And he showed them that it was okay to not wear long pants. It was okay to show off your prosthetic, right? And back mm -hmm. in that era, people were ashamed of having a prosthetic leg. So they said to us, you know, do you guys realize that if you get hurt, your health insurance covers a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair, but nothing to do with sport is covered by insurance because they consider sport a quote unquote luxury item. And at that point, we realized sport is not a luxury item. It's a huge part of who we are and what we do and, and part of what identifies us. 
So our goal became to create the Challenge Athletes Foundation, get a 5013C, and if someone needed a piece of equipment, training, or travel to stay in a game of life through sport, the Challenge Athletes Foundation would always be there. It's been 27 years. We've raised $123 million. We've sent out 30,000 grants to people in 73 countries, all 50 states in Puerto Rico. And right before COVID hit, we sent out 3,921 grants, totaling $5.9 million to athletes in 43 countries for 103 different sports. Who knew there were 103 different sports, right? We're talking (laughs) baseball for the blind. We're talking sled hockey. There's, There's so many different sports out there where people need equipment, training, and travel. And one of the things with COVID, think about if you're a wheelchair basketball player, right? You're with a social group. You're playing basketball. You're sweating. You're feeling good about yourself. Well, when you go home, you're a guy in a wheelchair or a woman in a wheelchair. And sport is way underestimated in terms of its power. So now during COVID, people weren't able to play wheelchair basketball. They weren't able to play quad rugby. You become more disabled. You become less motivated because you lose that social group and that interaction and that power that you get from others. So that's why it's been so important for us to be able to keep giving to our athletes and make sure that we're in constant contact and giving them that mental, physical support they need to, again, stay in the game of life through sport. And sport is sport right now and the equipment that they need is is more important than it's ever been. It's the the corrosion of the world shrinking, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's so critical. And uh, I want to say right now, fantastic. Congratulations on everything, but we're not done. And you're not done with this. Um, it, it, at the upcoming event that we're hosting purple patch performance reset, which we're going to talk about your role in inclusion. I, I think listeners right now over the last five minutes just realize why we have catapulted the challenged athletes foundation to the the very top of this i cannot interview you without asking your perspective on one of my favorite challenged athletes mohammed lana and uh for for most of the listeners will will probably know mohammed from my stories of coaching mohammed to being a medalist in the rio 2016 paralympics but uh, you were at that event, and you saw it live in Rio. So, so I'd just love a, a quick two minutes of your memories of, of Mohammed getting that medal. Well, first of all, Mohammed, what I always love about his story, I mean, he basically was born without a femur on his left leg, and we're talking born in Morocco. And at that point, what is without the that leg, I love how his parents adapted, because as a little boy, they could go, okay, the right leg's growing, the left leg isn't, we'll, we'll go to the cobbler, we'll go to the shoemaker, and we'll mm-hmm. add another heel to the bottom of his shoe, right? So at, by the time he's like six, seven, eight years old, they've got a green heel, a blue heel, he's got, he looks like the, the, the Tower of Pisa, right? He's, 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 he's leaning, and it took them forever. He didn't get his first prosthetic leg until he was 20. He rode a bike for the first time when he was 25 and ran for the first time at 27. And seeing him at the Paralympics representing Morocco in 2016 was in most cool. I happened to be at the first ever Olympic triathlon in 2000 in Sydney, which was 
you know, think about our sports started in 74 and we were in the Olympics by 2000. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to be in the Paralympics for the first time in 2016 in Rio and be down at the beach there and watching Mohammed. And now Mohammed was considered a you know, top five guy, but he had never beaten Mark Barr from the U.S. ever. Mm-hmm. And on that day, he caught a little wave and got a gap on Mark. And I think it's the only time he ever beat Mark in his career. He ended up getting a bronze medal. And Mark was coming. Mark was trying to run him down. But man, Mark, but Mohammed held him off. And it was what a joyous moment to watch a kid, like we said, just learn how to run and just learn how to ride. And what I'm sure you found out, every time you have a challenged athlete with a group of able-bodied athletes, the whining coefficient seems to disappear, right? It's hard for people to whine about, my back's a little sore, I didn't get much sleep last night, the dog was barking, when you got a guy who's riding with one leg. <laughs> it's, it, 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 Zach, I remember you telling me a story of Rudy heading to the, uh, to, to the camps and uh, the moaning would dissipate pretty quickly, eh? Huddle always at the multi-sports camps here in San Diego, Huddle would always ask if Rudy was available because, you know, you've got wealthy guys coming to do these camps. And if it's drizzly outside, if it's, you know, oh, my God, my saddle was off a centimeter, you you get the whining goes. But when you see Rudy, how'd your ride go, Rudy? Uh, How'd your ride go, Jimmy? Yeah, my back was a little sore. How'd yours go, Rudy? Oh, my leg came off four times. It's, It's a little different mentality. And it the, again, the whining goes away because people understand that, okay, uh, get over myself here. There's a bigger purpose, and we want to make sure, again, we all want to make sure that sport is universal, that everybody has access to it. And because we know, it's no secret how it makes our lives better. It, it, exactly. And I, I do want to make one more point as well. I come back to Mohammed and... You know, what, what we did with Mohammed when I started coaching him was throw him in with our female pros and our elite amateur males. And not only did the moaning go up, but he elevated the performance, the, the physical performance of everybody. And I think that one thing that is often missed, and it, and it goes back to your story of, of the nickel stuck on the floor, glued to the floor, is that if you take Rudy or if you take Mohammed, these are world-class athletes and that what they bring, we can all learn from. Like Mohammed is one of the best athletes I have ever coached. And I coach world champions. He, he has a world-class mindset that enables him to be successful. And, and I think that's often missed with uh, challenged athletes when they come through with a bit of the sympathy or isn't it nice type component. Um, do you know what I mean by that? <laughs> I do know what you mean by that. And it's funny because I think what, uh, when I look at a Rudy, right, four-time Paralympian going for a fifth Paralympic Games. I mean, when you think about 232 for 200 IM with no legs, I mean, that's unbelievable. Or running a sub six-minute mile with prosthetic legs when, I mean, that kid was told. Sometimes, you know, what we miss, Matt, is Rudy was told when he was, when he first had his legs amputated, and we're talking, he had 15 operations before he was five. And when his legs were amputated, because he had a flap of skin behind both knees, like it's called pterygium syndrome. And they couldn't just operate. They couldn't just cut those. So they, 15 operations. And finally, he asked his parents, it was his decision, please have my legs amputated. 
So when they were cut off, he felt like his chains were removed. And the next thing you know, you know, he's six years old and okay, so now he's missing both legs and they're calling Michael Davidson, the prosthetist. Mom is calling going, Rudy's had his legs amputated now. When's he going to run? And, and he's like, lady, he's on stilts. He'll never run. He'll be on, maybe he'll use a walker, but most likely he'll be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And so eventually Rudy's mom, Sandy, was so insistent on Rudy running that Michael set up a meeting at his office so that he could tell them face to face, Rudy will never run. And Michael tells this story when he walked into the waiting room, Rudy was doing a handstand on the walker. And at that point, he was like, if this kid wants to run, I better figure it out. And the two of them, they were collaborators on how do we create legs for kids to be kids? Not so much running in the Paralympics or any of that crap. It was just how do kids be kids? How do we help kids be kids? So he tells this great story. Rudy's like eight, nine years old. And they're meeting after Rudy. Rudy broke 50 sets of legs, right? Jumping mm -hmm. off of walls and skateboarding and so Michael says to Rudy, well, you broke the socket on the right side. What happened? And Rudy's explaining how he jumped off a wall and it shattered. And Michael says, I'm holding the socket and I'm tipping it back to see the crack and what's going on. And all these Tootsie Rolls fall out of this, this socket. And it made me realize that my collaborator is eight years old and he's, he's still a kid. And he's using his, he, he's using his socket to stash his stash. And we are doing something magical. If it wasn't for Rudy and Michael, we wouldn't have Hunter Woodhall and all these other athletes who are running on carbon fiber and running 44 seconds for a quarter mile and, and doing the half mile and, and just changing the world. But it started with Rudy. And Rudy led to Roderick, who did Ironman last year. And he was a, do is a double above knee amputee and, you know, again, was a homeless kid. And that shows you how screw up our system is. This kid, his mom worked for the government, but her insurance wouldn't cover legs for her son as a civilian, right? As a civilian working for government. Mm -hmm. So she, in order to get legs for her son, she became homeless and moved in the St. Vincent de Paul Center here in San Diego in order to get legs for her son. That's a little screwy. And then they meet Rudy. Roderick's eight, Rudy's 11. The two of them had never met another double above knee amputee. And ironically, when Roderick finished Ironman last October, the person who was crewing for him was Rudy and, the, you know, was there at the finish line to greet him. And those two have been so instrumental in the change of perception about what a challenged athlete and especially what a double above knee amputee can do. So, you know, sport is sport is essential in changing lives every single day. Well, I, I can't help but tell you a story, and I'm going to tell you a story about challenged athletes, and this is going to lead into uh, more on the legs. But a, a couple of years ago, we as a family, Kelly, myself, and my now eight-year-old, he was six at the time, Baxter, came down for the big San Diego triathlon, the big challenged athlete. What an event. What an absolutely amazing event. But there we were, a lovely weekend. There was Mr. Alan Shankin. We, we saw you. We saw everybody, Nancy, et cetera. So at the time, Baxter was six, and the day before the race, we went over to the high school and we saw all of the the sort of participation where he could participate, and Baxter was blown away because there were all these kids there, and he said, they're transformers. He's like, how comes they get robo-legs? And, uh, and it left 
such a massive imprint on him. And it also opened up a, a door of opportunity for Kelly and I to talk about adversity, inclusion, sport, and the value of it, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so fast forward to now, when we started this upcoming event, Performance Reset, we, we did it with a lot of ambition because we wanted to help all people to set up and thrive in 2021. But we, we knew that we couldn't do something this ambitious with this scale relative to what Little Purple Patch has done before without including the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And so our mission, we decided, is very targeted. And it, it really sort of dovetails off of your last story there is Kelly and I, the team at Purple Patch, we really want to support kids and, and run and fund as many of these prosthetic legs as possible. And, uh, and, and wheelchairs if they're needed, but, you know, the sort of from the robo legs of a couple of years ago, th these legs are expensive. Are they, are they $15,000 each? $15,000 each. And it's, it's funny because back in the day, like we talked about, it was considered you covered up your legs. You were embarrassed of your legs. Now you can have Spider-Man on your legs. You can have all sorts of cool designs on your legs. And we were Chris McCormick, two-time Ironman world champion, came I, I had been trying to get him out to our event for a number of years. And he came to the triathlon. He goes, I need to bring my girls here to see this. So the following year, he did the bike ride down the coast. And so it finishes at La Jolla Shores Park. And all of our, we have all of our challenge athlete kids are out there to greet the cyclist. We call it a tunnel of love. They put medals around all of all of the athletes as they ride in from San Francisco, 400 and, or 640 miles. So all the kids are out there playing. And they're jumping hurdles and they're playing a little baseball and all these games. And Chris McCormick's wife says to her daughters, uh, says to her daughter, uh, honey, why don't you go play with the other kids? And she looks at her and to show you how the world has changed, she goes, mommy, I can't play with them. I don't have a magic leg like they do. And, and that, that to me was the ultimate success where she actually thought of, hey, like you said, Robo, the RoboCop. Rudy was called RoboCop for years, right? And his favorite thing is when he beat a kid with legs in the pool, that was like the coolest thing. Cause he said, I touched him out and I'd been, I was, I was O for 50. I'd lost every race I did. And I finally beat this kid and he was in the lane next to me and all his friends were standing on the deck going, you lost to RoboCop. <laughs> you <laughs> lost to kid with no legs. You lost to no leg boy. And Rudy goes, I wanted more of that. I wanted more of that. And, and he did. It was, uh, it's been, been great. Well, at the, so that for the listeners sake, as we do this performance reset, we are obviously putting a percentage of all ticket sales to the challenged athletes foundation. There's also going to be an opportunity for folks to donate. And I'm not sure if you knew this, Bob, but I, I thought I would mention as well. I have actually got to help with the tin cup. And what I mean by that is, uh, as you know, I work with a lot of CEOs, a lot of executives, a lot of people that are really passionate about the power of sport. And I've put together a pool of uh, matching donations and that they're all incredibly excited. They're going to do it very discreetly. But basically what that means is over the course of the weekend, every dollar that we can secure across the performance reset, it's going to be worth two or three X of each of uh -huh. those dollars. That and so, so cool. So uh, that, 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 I'm so excited for that. There's also going to be one of the, uh, I, I guess, let me hold on that question. Let me ask it this. Um, I remember what, what, and it's it's only about six weeks ago that we started to put this, this thing together. And I thought, 
and we whiteboarded who would we love to be a a, a part of performance reset and we went down our whitelist and we said okay great dietitian and nutritionist behavioral psychologist the absolute preeminent expert in hydration maybe we can get the legend mark allen because i friend yeah okay and one of the names said they said what about bob babbitt will bob participate and i said well yeah i i know bob and everyone knows bob you know and i've been on his show but he, i said i don't know I, and, and i reached out and i thought that would be amazing and i called you and within two minutes you went i'm in 100 <laughs> percent. So, i love what it was the, what was the catalyst for that what, what, the, what's the, appealing about performance reset well the catalyst is when you know good people who do good things the when, when they reach out to you and say i'd like you to be connected with what i'm doing there's no hesitancy it's it's if Matt Dixon is doing something, it's going to be great. And I want to be involved. I want Challenge Athletes Foundation involved. Uh, when you you mentioned you know, Mark Allen, one of my favorite people on the planet. I mean, I've got a Mark Allen bobblehead sitting right behind me in, in my, my trophy case with the, the Dave Scott Iron War. It's, it's the whole idea of a performance reset. We've had a year where it's been, you know, without racing, a lot of us who put numbers on every week are going out of our minds. So the timing of this couldn't be better to, to say, listen, this has been a wash. We are going to focus on 2021, see where we're at, and see how we can get better next year. And, and we've talked about this. Our sport is the fountain of youth. Our sport, there's no reason that I can't be faster at 70 than I was at 60 or at 50. And I turned 70 next year. And that mm -hmm. became part of my, hmm, maybe Matt in his, in, 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 since he's a very kind individual, will do a little charity work and, and help this old loser try to become faster than, than he was before and see how we can do that. So seeing your list of people with Mark Allen and nutritionists and people who understand everything from wattage to, to, uh, to how to, how to run fast, how to ride fast, how to swim fast. It's, to me, it's a perfect opportunity to connect what my goal is, what Challenge Athletes Foundation's goal is, to an event that won't just be a one-off. I see this as an annual event that is going to be a, a camp everybody's in a clinic weekend that everybody's going to be want to be connected to. I, I, I absolutely agree. And uh, by the way, I will say here publicly that I, I commit to to your reset, which is you faster at seventy, and uh, and so we're going to get the mindset and. Uh, and the plan and the and the habits and that that is a campaign that we are going on. I, I want to hone in. I want to give people a little bit of a sneak preview. One of my last questions here, but you, you are going to be on a panel that is, for me, it's one of the most exciting things of the whole weekend. This this weekend has become so exciting, but it, it, it's affectionately named the AARKP Anarchist and. I want to explain to the listeners who is who is on this panel. So we have yourself. We have Heather Graham, who's a wonderful woman, really inspirational. She's actually been on this podcast, the Purple Patch Athlete. She has she is a lawyer, but has gone a, a woman of great adventure and um, and and really is going to bring a great perspective. We do have Mark Allen on there, the one and only, and and, and I absolutely agree. He's you know, Mark is known as uh, winning the Ironman in Hawaii six times, but he is just an unbelievably intriguing, powerful, humble, lovely guy. We have the fourth person is Kelly McMaster, my wife, 
she, yes, she's you won't believe it, Bob, but she's fifty, and uh, and has a and had uh, Baxter at forty two, almost forty three, and so uh, I think has a, a really interesting perspective of, and this is all anchored around the mindset as we age and the the power and importance of the backbone of mental and physical resilience through sport. The person that we have moderating is a is a lovely guy, Matt Hurst, and Matt previously ran all of sports at Red Bull, but he's also the founder of Ageist magazine and um, and done multiple TED Talks. He's an incredibly inspirational person around the maturing athlete, if you want to call it that. With that in mind, I can't help but giving listeners a little sneak peek of this. I haven't warned you for it, but I'm going to ask you a broad question. Explain the role of sport for you now that you do edge towards 70 as you age why is it important for you i think sport makes you a better makes you better everything you do and it makes you a better uh, employer employee parent spouse it, it just makes you better at everything you do i find and it's funny because in covid because you don't have the hey i need to be at the office at whatever time every single morning um riding and then going in the ocean and your your mind just opens up. You just you think so much clearer when you've gotten your workout in. Everything just seems to make sense. So I, I always call our sport the fountain of youth. And what it's great about specifically multi-sport is that as a runner, when you turn 50, you're probably not running faster than you ran at 45 or 40, right? Mm-hmm. But as a triathlete, with that swim, bike, run, weight training, yoga, mental, all, all the aspects put together, there is no reason that you can't be better. And all of us want to be better. All of us are like, because the whole thing with aging a lot of times is, man, I'm just trying to, just trying to hold on. No, you know what? You want to attack it. You want to attack it and say, I want to be better. I want to be faster. I want to do more. Why can't we? There's really no reason. If you think about it, when Dave Scott in 1994 was 40 years old and finished second at the Ironman, everybody was freaking blown away. Oh, my God. Look at all the guys now. T- 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 Tim- Timothy O'Donnell just turned 40, right? Jan Ferdano's 38, 39. All these guys are going, they're breaking the Ironman course records at, at close to 40 years old. Natasha Bodman was still racing at the age of 50 as a pro. So I see that there is one other interesting thing. Bill Bell didn't get into our sport till he's 55. And when he turned 70, back then you had age divisions that were 50 to 55, 55, 59, 60 plus. So Bill turned 70 and he calls me and says, Bob, I can't compete with those guys. I need, you know, I need a 70 to 74 division and a 60 to 65. So I called USA Triathlon. And next thing you know, 60, 64, 65, 69. Then when Bill turned 80, it was, hey, Bob, you know, again, I can't compete with these 70 plus guys. So now if you look at USA Triathlon, it's 80 to 84, 85 to 89, 90 to 94, 95 to 99. Bill Bell was still competing. He just passed away at 97, right? And he was still out there doing this stuff. And all of us can learn a, a valuable lesson from Bill Bell uh, and all his, his brother kept telling him, you're going to kill yourself doing this stuff. Well, his brother passed away at 65 and Maybe. Bill lasted to 97. So that, this, 
that panel is 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 going to be amazing. We might need, you know, we might need a few pee breaks and we we might need a few meal breaks, but we'll be good. Well, I, I, I it's it's fantastic. I I I I want to finish with um, with two quick things. The first, I just I just can't help but mention because so many of the listeners will be really familiar and probably avid fans of Breakfast with Bob. It's become legendary in the the multi sport space, and you've you have had the titans of the sport and and well beyond on this show. One of the things that we're doing this for this event, <laughs> so thankful you're doing this, but one lucky recipient one of the participants at the performance reset is going to get their own breakfast with Bob show. And uh, my, my question for you, are they going to get Poncho man on there? Absolutely. Poncho will be totally involved. We, we've been doing the, the, our own reset where we've done it. We've done Poncho man. I've had uh, taped some, some Poncho man playing that we've been doing the not quite Kona edition of breakfast with Bob, which you were kind enough to come on. And it's been it's been a blast. But no, Poncho Man's part of the gig, man. If they're if they're coming on the show, they're getting all the bells and whistles. We're talking Poncho Man. We're doing sponsors. We're doing all of it. And my favorite thing is learning about people and and finding out what makes them tick. And that's what's I know you love that as well. Every time you start an interview, people say, "Yeah, you've done five thousand plus interviews over the years," but every one of them is brand new. Every one of them. Even if I've interviewed Jan Ferdano a million times, when he told me recently about, you know, when you talked about the mental mindset, when he talked about he had won a couple of ITU races, but he certainly wasn't a favorite to win the gold medal in in uh, Beijing in 2008. So a guy named Courtney Atkinson from Australia, he saw a a commercial with Courtney talking about he knew what the gold medal was going to feel like around his neck. Right. And he's like, you know, I need to know that feeling. I need to embrace. I need to know what it's going to feel like to grab the tape. Every workout he did finished with a 200 meter sprint because he was going to be sprinting for the gold medal. On race day, Simon Whitfield made a move and Jan Ferdano ran by him. But every single night, Jan had practiced winning mentally between the years, winning the gold medal. And he did because he had done it hundreds of times before the race, even though Javier Gomez already had a, they had a parade plan for him back home in Spain. But as far as Jan was concerned, it was his medal to win and he won it. And he won he it was. probably because of the medal side. Exactly. He was familiar without, before it even happened, he was familiar with it. Yep. Bob, thank you for being on the show. That's the smallest one. Thank you for being you. and. Most importantly, thank you for what you do, and uh, you, you are genuine inspiration. You are you, you're you're fantastic, and I, I'm so looking forward to having you being a part of uh, performance reset. And and in Bob, true Bob style, I said we'll really try and squeeze it in. We'll make it just an hour of your time, and you said screw that. I'm up there for the weekend, and so Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to spending the weekend. Thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate having you. Being I appreciate you. And- including me, including Challenge Athletes Foundation. Matt, appreciate everything you do to make our sport better. You're doing it every day. That's what it's all about. Thanks, mate. Take care. All right. Thanks, Matt. Well, guys, if you're not inspired and the message of Challenged Athletes Foundation didn't resonate and you're not eager and salivating 
to get involved with Performance Reset on November the 13th and the 15th. I don't know what else I can do. That was special. Bob, thank you so much. So much in there that I just had no idea of your background and your story. And it was so much fun. One of my favorites ever. And so, Bob Babbitt, thank you. Guys, listeners, get on it. PerformanceReset2020.com. Get your friends engaged. You register. And of course, let's go and get those robotic legs, shall we? Me, you, and everyone. Onward and upward, right from here. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers.